or we are uh, about bringing the grace of Jesus Christ to the city. And we are not just an organization or a club or a group or a social activity. We are trying to be a church, and that means we are a family. So there's a couple of things that I want to explain to you right off the bat as I explain family. That if, if you are just coming into Urban Grace for the very first time, uh, we're super glad you're here, number one. But secondly, we would say that you're missing out on a lot of what Urban Grace is about. I won't get into percentages because I always get in trouble over this, um, but it's somewhere over half of what Urban Grace is about uh, does not happen here in this what we would call the big meeting. We, too, we do actually two things here. Uh, it's quite simple. Uh, should be easy for you to remember. Uh, two words that are really important. Big and? Yeah, some of you are awake this morning. That's awesome. So this is what we would call the big. It's actually getting bigger and bigger, and sometimes, depending on the weather, it gets smaller and smaller. But this is what we call the big. This is where we gather to worship Jesus, and I'm kind of glad that this is where we, we do the band stuff, because... Our house, A, is too small, and B, it would just be weird uh, to do all that music in our house. So we do all that stuff here. We do the preaching of the word here. We do the singing out loud with the band here. We do the connecting to the initial mission of Urban Grace. Very few people connect to uh, Urban Grace through our uh, small uh, without coming here first. And so this is a way for us to connect with you, to, to introduce you to perhaps Jesus or the mission that we're on and that we believe Jesus has called us to. But again, this isn't really the only place. And this isn't for those of you who are part of a, uh, the small, which we call city groups, uh, you can attest to this, that this is really where the real growth in your spiritual life often happens. As we proclaim the word on Sunday morning, we're going to talk about that in a bit. Uh, As we proclaim that word, often we need to just submit ourselves to it and hear the word of God. But then we also need to process that and have that go deep. And we need to do that in the context of community. And it's starting to get kind of a rule around here that if you want to be involved in urban grace, we just kind of flat out say you you can, but you really got to be in community. All, All the people that are part of uh, leadership here are part of community. In fact, they lead community. And that's just the way it works around here is we think everything should be passed through the filter of community or what we would say, again, the small. So if you're not part of a city group, let me make this plea to you to fill out one of those connect cards, get into a city group, the nearest one. Hopefully we've got four. Uh, we're going to perhaps launch five in May. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool because we had big dreams for all of our city groups and uh, Jesus has been kind to answer a lot of our of our dreams and our and our hopes. So that's our that's the big and small spiel. If you're brand new to Urban Grace and you're planning on coming back, get used to that little spiel there because you'll hear it basically every week to the point where you will be able to tell other people what this is about. In fact, some of you actually were mouthing the words as I was talking, which was kind of cool. But uh, we're, you know, a couple weeks ago, we had a really special moment uh, at Urban Grace. We told kind of the story of Urban Grace and how we began from from zero. Well, I shouldn't say zero. We, we, we began from seven, but three of those were my family members, including myself. So really, we, we gathered with four. And one person that's been part of that from the very beginning is our friend Sharla. Most of you know Sharla. And uh, we told Sharla to get on mission and to bring people, and she did. She brought her fiancé. So we just wanted to announce that Grant and Sharla, if you'll just kind of stand or like halfway or disobey me completely as your pastor... Yeah, come on. It's one way to grow a family, right? Uh, we wanted to just say thank you, uh, Sharla, and has been there kind of right from the beginning. And as I said before, she was one of those sympathy votes for the first three or four months until uh, she heard me preach for about an hour every Sunday in a basement. And uh, then she kind of warmed up a bit to it and now... Um, we're just so pleased to have Charla and now Grant in the, in the family with us. So welcome, you guys. Okay, well, let me pray, and then we're going to get into the book of Nehemiah. Jesus, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you didn't tell us to obey you and then instructed us to figure it out on our own. You gave us your word. And this morning, we're going to open your word, Jesus, and we're going to We're going to look at something that's well over 2,000 years old, Jesus. 
But we want you to do something that you promised to do, and that is to make it alive to us. So would you do that? You have to work in our hearts this morning um, because many of our hearts are not just cold from the weather. We're spiritually cold, and we're not in tune with what you want to say to us. And so we're going to ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and be with us this morning, that you would warm our hearts. You explained that really when we start out, our hearts are, are like stones. Uh, they're not warm. Um, they're not easy to work with. But you said through your spirit, you would warm our hearts and you would soften our hearts. And you would make us not just feel like we should believe or we should obey or we should do these things, but that we would want to. And so this morning, I'm going to ask Jesus that you again do something miraculous that we ask you every Sunday, and that is, would you send your Holy Spirit to us for this reason and this purpose right now and make Nehemiah crystal clear to us, uh, not just in a way that that helps our knowledge, but in a way that Jesus affects us deeply. We love you and we ask you for this, for your glory and for your name's sake. Amen. Okay, we're in a we're in a series called Nehemiah and uh, We're just sequentially going through this book of Nehemiah. Believe me, if you're just joining us this morning, yes, if you've ever read the book of Nehemiah, we've we've gone through every single verse so far. I believe we've read every single verse out loud, including all of those awesome names. Um, And if you're interested in how to read a book, uh, the Jerusalem phone book, there's a message a couple weeks ago that will explain how to do that. It's actually hilarious. But uh, we're in the, the eighth chapter of Nehemiah. And we're in the ninth verse. Uh, Here's a little confession. Um, I'm not exactly the most organized person that you've ever met in your life. And believe it or not, when I broke down the passages, I literally forgot to include a section of Scripture last week in the message. Can you believe that? Some of you picked up on that. Uh, I didn't until this past week. Um, And so I'm going to have to read this section too, which starts in verse 9. 8 chapter 9. If you're brand new or you don't have a Bible this morning, would you just kindly raise your hand and one of the ushers will bring a Bible to you. And if you don't have a Bible or you don't have a phone, which is probably not true, most of you have phones more than you have Bibles, um, but we would love you to keep that Bible if that's one, uh, if, if that's your first Bible. We, we're big on the Bible here and so we want you to have a Bible. That's our gift to you. So keep it if that's your first Bible, or if you just can't find yours. So let me read in in Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 9. And this is what it says. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the law. As they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our God. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. I read that right, by the way. That's booths. And they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make, yes, booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths, For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of God. As I 
explained, uh, we're, we're in a series on Nehemiah, and we actually call it Magnusivitus, which is Latin for the phrase great city. I think it's actually kind of backwards, but that's because um, Civitus Magnus doesn't sound the same as Magnusivitus. So I, I did that. You got some luxury there, I think, uh, creative luxury. And what this, this is about is, is Nehemiah is a book about building a great city. But really, it's not just about building a great city. It's about rebuilding a people in a great city. See, a lot of the context of Nehemiah is how he rebuilds the wall. We have lots of things to learn about Jesus and what Jesus is doing in our life. But really, it's not about building the wall exclusively. In fact, I wouldn't even say primarily. Uh, You'll notice this because we're halfway through and the wall is actually already built. Nehemiah has come back from his great job in Persia and he has felt convicted by God and he is there, there's something that happened in Nehemiah's heart that 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 he had to come back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that's what God placed upon his heart I really do believe that Jesus broke Nehemiah's heart for his hometown city and it, it, it had lied in ru- lied in ruins for a, a, about 140 years and then Nehemiah comes back and is, is rebuilding the wall. But really, what Nehemiah comes back for is he comes back to help rebuild the people. And these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, who's read the book of Ezra uh, in this series? No one? That's a little bit of a homework. Uh, they're actually, uh, at one point in kind of history, those two books were the same book. And they just split them apart just for the sake of, of, of kind of helping us understand a little bit better. But, but Ezra is kind of the, the pastor, and Nehemiah is kind of the executive pastor. That's how it worked. And so what happens is once the wall is built, once the executive pastor basically does his work of getting the building in place and, and reminding the people of, 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 of building this city and, and helping them to understand that, then he says, okay, Ezra, it's your turn to come and start preaching the word. And literally, as soon as the wall is built, this is the first thing that happens. So the executive pastor kind of gets the building in place. He gets the service organized. He gets the people gathered. He's a great motivator. And then he says, Ezra, would you explain to us what is going on in God's word? And actually, this always happens in revival. If you look throughout biblical history, what you will see is whenever there is some sort of revival in God's people in Scripture, and actually, if you look in history as well, what you will see is every time just before this great revival, you see a very repentant people, a people who clearly understand their sins. But this actually comes out of gospel, good gospel preaching. There's, there's literally no record in history of any sort of evangelical Christian revival happening without preceded by some sort of gospel strong preaching. In other words, the attention that God places upon the word and the attention that the people uh, place on the word of God actually precedes everything that God does in revival. And that's why I titled this message Revival in the City, because this is essentially what's happening is that the people have seen the wall rebuilt and it's been built in a miraculous time, like 52 days. Now, I'm not even sure in this city you can get a building permit in 52 days. But in those days, somehow, Jerusalem has this wall completely rebuilt and organized by Nehemiah. Because he knows, if you read it, he means business. And he's not ready to just kind of be distracted by opposition. And yet he also knows the importance of what the word does. Now, revival is an interesting thing. Someone was asking me recently, like, how do you get revival? Anyone want to be part of revival? Anyone? And most of you, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Revival is is kind of it's it's in the word, really. It's it's to be revived. Now, there's a couple things about that. You're not starting anything new. You're just discovering something old in a fresh way, which is a lot like Nehemiah, isn't it? That that this need to rebuild the wall was not new news. It was actually really old news that he understood in a very fresh way. And revival is, in some ways, reviving all of the old uh, things. And some of these old things are are when there was just a, a fresh movement of God. And revival, actually, some people think revival is, is when a bunch of new things happen. But revival isn't when a bunch of new things happen. Revival is when the same thing that God always does happens in special speeds and special doses. 
Here's what I mean by that. Revival is usually accompanied by lots of people getting saved. Lots of people discovering that they are sinners, that they're in great need of a Savior. Lots of people discovering that the Word of God is authoritative in their life. Lots of people discovering that their life is a mess and they need the gospel to come into their life. Lots of people all over the world experience this on a daily basis. This is what God is always doing. He's always been doing this in the city of Calgary. Did you know that when Calgary became a city in 1875, that there had already been missionaries in the area preaching the gospel for 40 years? Did you know that? 40 years before this was actually a city, there were people preaching the gospel, bringing the word. This has always been a part of what God has been doing. But I'm not sure we've ever seen a lot of revival. I think there has been some evidences of revival. But here's what revival is. It's the same thing God has always been doing, just in a faster speed and a larger dose. So people are always getting saved. Lots of people get saved. People are, are rebuilding their marriage. Lots of people are rebuilding their marriage. Children are turning back to their parents and you're like, I'm in for that revival. Lots of them at one time. And so revival isn't really anything new. Revival is actually something very old in a new and fresh way. And how do, what are some of the, the, the preceding things that happened before revival? Honestly, it's actually what we're right in the middle of. It's preaching the gospel. Some of us have experienced what I, I've never experienced anything like this before. Okay, I never planted a church, so. Uh, I don't really have a lot of skills in this other than I just kind of won't quit. But other than that, there's not a lot of skills to this. But I've never been a part of a church where I've seen as many new births in Jesus Christ. I've never experienced this in a church in my life before. This is, in some ways, feels a little bit like maybe if this happened even more, this would feel like revival. But I, I like, where's the line? There is no line. You can really only see revival from kind of later years. When you're in it, it doesn't, you're just kind of like, this seems kind of normal where people get saved. Did you know that there are like tens of churches in this city where nobody has gotten saved in the last 15 or 20 years? Like, I don't, I can't imagine what that's like. I mean, this probably would feel like revival to them. I feel like we're just getting started. I mean, Resurrection Sunday was cool, but I'm like, we got a lot left. Got a lot of years of seeing these resurrections, these uh, water resurrections. And so this morning, what I want to do is simply, it's, it's like it's part two of the text. Because part one is the people ask uh, Nehemiah, and, and they end up asking Ezra the scribe. Um, we have a scribe in our midst, too. Her name is Sarah, not, not uh, Ezra. Um, she's the one taking notes kind of like this. Um, you'll, you'll notice her. If, if you miss any notes, she's there. She'll give you the notes. They ask Ezra the scribe, though, to stand up and to, to speak the word. And then all the leaders of the, the priesthood, they're supposed to explain the word to people. And this, this part of the text is kind of what happens as a result of that. So really it's part two. And, and part of me thought, you know, this is another message on the word, but really I don't think we can emphasize this enough. So a lot of you weren't here last week and a lot that were here last week aren't here this week. And so we need to clearly understand the importance and place of the word of God in our church if we want to see revival in our city. And so this is essentially what happens, is Nehemiah, uh, immediately following kind of the reading of Scripture, the people essentially get convicted of their sin. This is what happens. Um, each year, the, 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 the word is explained, what they're reading is they're reading the book of the law, and the book of the law explains uh, what the people are supposed to do. And what the people are supposed to do is, is they're actually supposed to experience uh, something really interesting. A lot of you think that the Old Testament has filled all of these stories full of judgment and, and how God doesn't like people and he can hardly wait to punish them. But if, if you look at the first five books of the gospel, what you'll often see is is tremendous grace given to the people. And every time that the people really mess up, actually what happens is God forgives them. Often he'll punish them and discipline them in the process. But then before they can even respond in obedience, he'll promise that he'll do great things for them again. 
And so actually, the, the, you'll see almost more grace in the Old Testament because it's bigger than you do in the New Testament. You see boatloads of grace in the Old Testament. And one of these great graces that God gives is He said, each year, you as a people, what I want you to do is I want you to celebrate seven feasts a year. Seven feasts, one fast. Do you know what a feast is, everyone? Feast is kind of like a buffet with good food. Okay? We have feasts. We call them like Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving. Some of you like every Friday night. Right? That's what a feast is. A feast is where you have great food. You enjoy food. You sit back there. You actually say you're so full, you're sick or you're almost going to throw up. That's a feast. Enjoying the goodness. Some of you can't wait for your feast. Some of you plan for feasts. These people had like God-oriented, commanded feasts per year. Seven of them. One fast. One time per year, he said, I want you to stop eating to remember me. Seven times a year, he said, I want you to eat as much as you can remembering me. Who's like, I kind of want to live in that time. Some of these feasts were long. The Passover feast lasted at least a week. I mean, these were, you, you, you had a lifestyle of feasting. I think the point of God honestly was when some stranger would walk in, he would go, man, these people eat a lot. And God really wants them to celebrate a lot. What's this? What are they celebrating about? Ah, God says, I'm so glad you asked. Each one of these feasts had a very particular purpose and it. it was supposed to remind the people of particular things. That God had done in the past. And the Passover feast was to remind the Jews and the Hebrews that God had delivered them from Exodus. That's what it was very festive. That's why when we celebrated this year, uh, the way we celebrated it in our city group, we did that as city groups this year. And it really felt a lot like New Year's Day. New Year's resolution was like good lamb. I mean, good lamb. It was good lamb. I mean, there were good recipes. It was really emotional. We were celebrating. We were kind of lamenting. Some had had tough years in our group. Some had great years in our group. But we were a family that was celebrating God's goodness as we looked forward. It really felt like this is like New Year's Day. Actually, it was. That's exactly the point of that feast, was to treat it like New Year's Day. But not New Year's Day where like you get drunk and you, you blow one of those things. That's a lame way to celebrate the new year. And we all do it. A great way to celebrate the new year is to spend a week remembering what God has done. Kind of like sports highlights. You know how they, you know, on sports programs for like 24 hours of the day, they replay all the great events of the year. That's what Christians should start doing. Like just have big parties where we're just going to like replay all the great events of our life of God's grace in the past year. That's exactly what the Passover feast was. Now, this is what's amazing is that when the people get, they hear the word of God, they start crying. It's kind of one of the few places in Scripture that there's actually biblical uh, precedent for stop crying. Quit crying. No crying. There's no crying in feasting. That's kind of, that's kind of what the text of Nehemiah is like, whoa, 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 whoa. I know you're crying. And in some ways, that's kind of like an appropriate response, right? When you, when you realize, well, maybe they were crying like, oh, we missed out all on the feasts. Maybe that's what they were doing. But I think they were deeply convicted of their sin and, and deeply convicted by the fact that they had neglected God's word for so long. That it, that it wasn't just about having a great city of protection. It wasn't about having a place to worship God. It was, it was, they had forgotten that God loved them so much that He cared so much about them. That in spite of the way that He disciplined them, He still wanted to, them to be His people. And He cared for them and He saved them. You see, you're my people. Sorry. Buzz Lightyear here has to reset. So let's first talk about what the Word of God does. And I think this is, this is very appropriate. Is that the Word of God brings conviction. Conviction of sin. And for many of us, this is our only experience of God. And that's kind of, I'm kind of glad that it's first. Because this isn't the only purpose of God. But it is a very important purpose of God. And I think... In many ways, it has to come first. 
and it should come first. I think even as preaching, I've learned, like put the points of conviction, put the points where the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, put them at the beginning of the message because you need to, you need to be convicted of your sin. I mean, you can't believe the gospel without believing that, that Jesus didn't just die so that you could have a symbol. Jesus died because he paid the price for your sin. I mean, the whole gospel message, it rests on the fact that we are sinners. Without, that, without believing that part, we don't really move much. And this is why I don't think the gospel feels like that great of news to our culture. The reason why I believe that is because most of us don't believe we're that bad. And we don't, we don't need a sinner that bad. We don't need a savior that bad. And it's not the easiest thing to talk about. It is not the easiest thing to be convicted of. I don't enjoy being convicted of sin. Do you? Do you love when you're like, oh, that feels good to feel rotten? <laughs> None of us are like that. We don't like that. And it's one of the th- one of the reasons why actually let me let me take this time to kind of bring this into w- where we're at. That's why we go through the books of the Bible like we do. By the way, it's one of the reasons why we stand up here and depending on who the preacher is, anywhere between forty five minutes and an hour, we talk about the Word of God as we believe so strongly we need to sit under the authority of God's Word, and, and we just don't like that very much. It's not something that we're always naturally drawn to, and yet in the same way, it's something that is so good for us, isn't it? That when we are convicted of our sin, and then we hear the gospel, and how in spite of that sin, God still loves us, it's so good, isn't it? It's so soothing to know that we're way worse than we could ever imagine, and yet we're loved more than we can comprehend. And we don't hear that if we don't open the Word of God, and that's why it's such a big part of our service. That's why it's such a big part of the big. It's because we don't generally, we aren't drawn toward being convicted of our sin. It's our practice here to go through books of the Bible, and here are some reasons. I think some of us, our Bible intake is very tailor-made for our lives. There's a story about Benjamin Franklin that, that, that literally he went through everything, he went through the Bible, and he had a... I don't think they were called an exacto knife then, but he had one of those sharp knives. And he went through his Bible, and everything that he found negative, he cut out. And said, that's the Bible that I want to read. That's what I think sometimes we do without actually getting our knife out. Especially when we just go to the Word when we're hurting. When we just go to the Word and we say, well, I... I've got to find something that would be encouraging today. So, you know, Jesus, uh, why don't you encourage me from here? Or we have our pet verses, the verses that we want to hear. Like, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Or something that would go on a Thomas Kincaid painting or something on a mug. Right? You don't see, and Nehemiah, who was the governor on the side of a coffee cup, do we? It's like, no, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't see those things. We wouldn't write, and the people cried all day and put that on a mug, you know, with some bunnies near a stream. Like, that wouldn't make sense. That's the way, but you laugh about that, but the funny thing is, some of us read our Bibles like this. We flip to what's really cozy for us and warm. And one of the important things that that even in preaching I'm trying to model is we will go through the text whether it seems like it applies or not. And someone said, you know, some will respond and say, well, some parts of the Bible are good, but other parts aren't. Well, the problem is the Bible said all parts are good. So if you say that, you are actually saying the Bible is lying about itself. And we laugh about Benjamin Franklin, but the truth is, I know Christians everywhere that are just so content that the moment they can't understand a word, they turn to an easy part of Scripture that they can understand, that they don't have to really work hard to understand. And it's why we go sequentially through. Do you think I looked forward to that name section to preach when I first looked at that? You think for a second that was easy for me to kind of comprehend? It wasn't. 
It wasn't at all. I'm not, it's, it's work that you could do. Most of the time, pre, all, all that preaching is is a commentary on what I have been learning in the text myself. But I have to sit with this word too, and I have to hammer my way through it. And there are many places in this book and in this bigger book that I don't really care to read and that aren't easy to read. I'm in Exodus right now. I'm in the parts of the tabernacle. This is hard reading, my friends. I don't have a lot of notes in my journal Bible from that. Some of you, the journal Bible, this is a Bible with a journal in it. That's what I'm talking about, journal Bible. It's not easy reading about how they sewed these garments and what you make these posts out of and what kind of oil you fill the lamp with. And I'm like, we don't even do that anymore. And yet in some way, here's what's important is that Scripture often, even those places, convicts me of sin and convicts me deeply. And that's why we need to hear Scripture. Because first of all, it does convict us of sin. And as it convicts us, what it does is it reminds us that we are not the center of God's story, that God is the center of God's story. You know, too often people say, I don't really understand the Bible. And, and, and my response sometimes is, that's because it's not about you. You know, we, we, as, as preachers, we do this thing, we call it spring training for preachers, where every year we sit down and kind of go through some basic principles. We call it the workshop for biblical exposition. And one of these principles of expositional preaching or preaching from the Word is, it's not about you, silly. Now, does it apply to me? Yes. Absolutely. This is why the Word is awesome. These are not simply words on a page. But I think something that we've got to read is like, God's doing so much more than just trying to rebuild my marriage. Or bring me a boyfriend or girlfriend. Or get me a good job. Or help me to finish school. Or help me to manage my pocketbook. That there is so much more going on. And and the reading of Scripture is so important for us to, to hear preached, yes. To convict us of sin, yes. But to draw us out of our own story into God's story. See, most of the time we try to put God in our story. We try to shove Him in there. Let's get God in me, you know. Let's get God in my story. How can I bring God and put him in like my little story? And I think God's like, you're, you're getting this all wrong. This is me plucking you up and putting you in my story. That's what scripture helps us with. And when we don't do that, have you noticed when you're not in the word, you begin to think it is all about you. Right? When someone does a toast, you're like, to me. You think you're the center of the universe. You think everything that God is doing in the world revolves around you. And you think when you obey, God's like, yes, I was waiting for that one person before all of these dominoes could fall. And what the scripture does is says, you are not the point of the story. You're in the story, but you're not the point of the story. Jesus is the point of the story. And without the preaching of the word, without the full Counsel of the Word, God says, you will get this distorted view of God's story. Now, this is what's amazing about God. is despite that, is how personal He can make this story feel to you. Hey, have you not noticed how He, he does care about all the little details of your life in spite of the fact that you're in His story? I'm just amazed by this. Every time I think about, why, why in the world would you use me even here? Like, it doesn't make sense. You're doing so much more. Like, people are getting saved other places. You could use better people with more skills. And yet, I feel a closeness to Jesus, and I feel like He really wants me on this mission. He really wants me to be your pastor. He, really, he actually has answered my prayers. Out of, like, six billion, seven billion, eight billion people in the world right now, he still hears my prayer and answers my prayer in a way that I understand and think it's actually God. This is amazing. Now, without the whole counsel of Scripture, we never get there. 
And I would challenge some of you, this is why I believe in Bible reading programs. Some of you would say, okay, Bible reading programs, too much. I'm not that much of a nerd, so I don't want to do the Bible reading program. This is what I would say. Read a whole book through. And choose a book that you don't particularly like. Just try it. And read sequentially through it. You don't understand it the first time? Read it again. Don't understand it the second time? Get a study Bible for some help. Ask questions from a friend. Do some underlining. Begin to think through, what is God trying to say in this whole story of this book? You'd be amazed. The whole story of, of my friend last week, he just started in the book of Luke, he's in chapter 6, and it's like Scripture's coming alive for him. I'm like, chapter 6? There's like 25 chapters in Luke. And it's only one of many books of the Bible. You've got lot. Can you imagine the richness of Scripture? I mean, I'm getting a lot out of Nehemiah. I don't know about you, but I'm getting a tremendous amount of Nehemiah. There's 65 other books in the Old Testament. Some of them quite a bit longer than Nehemiah that will draw us out of our story. Thirdly, the Scripture reminds us that we're not alone. It convicts us of our need for community. And we make this, I rant about this all the time, A, because it's the only other thing we do besides this big thing. But I said what Scripture does too is it reminds us you don't, you don't, you don't have a life in Jesus outside of the people that are around you. There's so many people today that say, I love God, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. That's the equivalent of saying, I love the husband, but I can't stand the wife. Now, that's fine if all you're interested in loving is the husband. But if you say, I love that family, but really I only love the kids, or I only love the dad or the mom, you don't love the family, you love the dad or the mom. But God actually says, if you don't love people, you don't love me. I married myself to my church. You don't love my people. And how do you love people that you don't know and you don't serve with and you're not in community with? You can't. You hear it all the time from concert stages and podiums everywhere. We just need more love. Right? It's very common today. We need more love. And yet those same people, if certain people come up to them, they say, uh, not you. <laughs> yeah, we need more love, but I don't want to love you. And what Scripture does is it, it, it takes you and reminds you that you're not alone. That you need community. And that I'm beginning to understand that community is so important, I don't really think we begin to really understand the gospel until we're in community. We don't really understand that this is what the gospel is delivered for. So some of us are trying to live these really individual lives, trying to get the gospel right outside of community. And I would say, you, you can't. Even when you look at God, and this is where there's a big problem for many people with, with the way Christians understand God. That God describes himself as three in one. He describes himself as a community that loves and serves one another. Even the very doctrine of God has community in it. So when God says, I want you to be in community, he's not saying like, I'm God, I want you to learn about this, and then, oh yeah, this community is a good idea. No, he says literally that you will understand me when you're in community because that's how I understand me. And that's how you understand me. But again, we, we, we've got to move on from there because some of you are like, oh, I'm really convicted. And by the way, I just last week was, was quite something. Uh, the response was, was tremendous from many, many people. And uh, I wasn't really paying attention to the message while I was preaching it, to be honest, because I was so convicted myself. I know this sounds really weird to say, but I think when Jesus truly answers my prayer of the Holy Spirit come, come along. It's, it's literally like at some point I just kind of come and I join you and I just listen to the words that Jesus has put on my heart. And I, I'm submitting to them too. And I stood there after the message and I was like, oh, I have not obeyed this either, God. How in the world can I tell these people about this when I'm struggling through this? And what I needed to hear 
as well as, I, I cry a lot, so I, I notice that in the text, but stop crying. Now's not the time to cry. And so I think if we only come in here and we just receive conviction, I think we're missing a lot of what the word is about. Again, seven feasts, one fast. What do you think God wanted to emphasize? What do you think he wanted to explain to his people that he was about? The lack of food or the amount of grace? I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? And so literally Nehemiah is like, the, the applicators of the word said, don't, don't cry. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. The day they're talking about, the day they heard about, the day that was read about is called the Feast of Trumpets. It was a special feast. It was like a Sabbath. You didn't do any work on that day, and I'm assuming there were some trumpets pretty simple and i don't know what they did they trumpeted i guess and said this day is holy and god is awesome that was the day go enjoy the day god is great quit crying go have some really good lamb or beef whatever it is it's like go go eat the fat portions now some of us are like i'm vegan so this doesn't really appeal to me and i get that But this is like saying, go get the best food you can find. All that stuff that you save for the special occasion, we all have that, right? Like the pie. Go get the pie. Go get the big steak. Go get the vegan burger, whatever it is. That's great for you. You know, the house salad, I don't know. Go get that and quit crying and enjoy God's goodness. And I think they did. That's what I love. They did it. Um, I think we miss out sometimes and we we think that God only commands us and convicts us of our sin, but he actually commands us to celebrate. That's a command. Actually says, you should be joyful. In fact, he says, "The the joy of the Lord is your strength. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so, again, this is what Scripture does, is it reminds us of God's goodness, and it gives us a clear picture of grace. Because when we read Scripture, even some of these Old Testament passages that maybe perhaps look really dark and gloomy and we try to avoid, actually they give us a really clear picture of grace and remind us that we don't, it's not about what we do for God, it's about what God does for us. So many people think that Christianity is about what I do for God. And yet another person. You ever have this? If you're a Christian and someone finds out you're a Christian, especially if you're a pastor, so maybe this doesn't work for you, but as soon as people find out I'm a pastor, one of the first words out of their mouth is, I better stop swearing. Better watch my language. Now, okay, but part of me is really bothered by this. Because it's the wrong perceptions. Like, I'm not in charge of judging whether you sin or not. So if you sin and I'm not there, like I just, it's a misperception, obviously, of of who God is. It's like, you're more important than God. God's not watching me, but you sure are. (laughs) And you sure care about whether I say bad things. I don't think I've ever said, I am a pastor, quit swearing. Ever. In fact, usually I hear, you're a pastor, quit swearing. I worked on a construction site where they have like 70 names for everything that they like. Like, I'm used to this. But as Scripture basically says, it's not about that it's not what about what you say or what you do. It's about what God has done for you. That's why every week we've got to come back and go, the Gospel says it's not about what we have done for God, it's about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Every single week. If that's boring to you, you might want to look for another church because that's what we're going to do here each week. We're going to open the Word and say, and here's what it says about it. From And this this is where the Gospel is here. And this is where the Gospel is here. And next Next month, we may go into 
First John, and we're going to show you the gospel there. And then we're going to go to Genesis, and we're going to take a long time to show you the gospel there. Or whatever. I'm just throwing things out there. We're not going through Genesis yet. <laughs> Maybe we should. And so, as soon as you understand that, you, you get happier. You get joyful, and it get, provides you with strength. And what I've noticed is that as I've preached... In spite of the fact that I tell people, you need to understand you're a sinner, I've never seen a happier church in my entire life. Because when we sing these songs, I can see it on your face. I'm saved. Man, my sins are forgiven. I mean, Easter Sunday, I just about burst my eardrums singing about how good it was to be saved by Jesus. And Scripture does this. A true right reading of Scripture does it. It shows us where to find true joy. It, 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 it hides us and, and shows us the, the terribleness of idolatry. idolatry. See, some of you think uh, the question is um, if you should worship or not. That's never the question. You are made a worshiper. You will worship something or someone. The question is just who or what you will worship. And many of us worship ourselves. And many of us worship created things. And the Bible says, if you worship yourself or you worship creative things, they will always fail you every time, eventually. If you choose to begin to worship God now and turn your passions for these things towards passions for these things, you will actually find true joy. You will actually know when you really know who God is, and I, again, I see this on your face, when I see people discover who Jesus really is, they cannot wipe the smile off their face. When I see people who don't get the gospel, who think it's about what they do, those are the people that get out of here as fast as they can and never come back. And the Scripture truly preached, truly read, truly understood helps us to find true joy there's an illustration um, from, the illustration is really, it comes from literally the, the title of this old Puritan um, article. And in this old Puritan article, Puritans were like from the 1600s, they were really gospel people, but they preached, like they preached really long sermons. Like really long sermons. Like one guy was like, he's a long preacher. How long did he preach? Three and a half hours. So, you're welcome for only preaching an hour, by the way. But they, they wrote these great articles about the gospel, and the title of this one article is called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I, I loved that phrase because this is what the whole article is, like 30 pages, but you can get it from the title. He literally is trying to explain how you shouldn't try to stop loving something in order to love God, you should start loving God and you will begin to not love whatever you're worshiping. And I've used this illustration before. But if you've ever had a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a hobby or anything that you've loved, and they break up with you or they leave or you can't do it anymore, what's really the only thing that can kind of take away that pain? Find a new one. Break up with a bad girlfriend, you find a new one. Soothes a lot of things. You forget much faster with that new boyfriend, girlfriend. For me, it's hobbies, thankfully. Hey, babe? When I leave an old hobby, generally what I find in my life is, is I'm trying to get rid of that old hobby or something like that. I just get a new hobby. That's why you call me 100% Trev. Because that's really how we're wired. And I usually don't get rid of an old hobby until a new one comes along and completely takes over the old hobby. And that's how it works for me in my life. So, again, you're welcome for the living illustration. Some of you don't need to stop or trying hard to, to, to read your Bible. You should just fall in love with Jesus. And then you will want to read your Bible because it's about Jesus. It doesn't always come without a fight, by the way. And sometimes we think, like, this should, this should be super easy and it should come really quickly. But anything that is worth value, you know, does not come quickly. 
Getting in shape does not happen overnight, right? It takes time. Getting financial health. If, you, if some of you are in debt, and, and if you go to your financial planner and you say, I want to be out of debt by tomorrow morning, they will look at you and say, that's not how this works. This is a long obedience in the same direction. This is a fight. This takes time. And yes, finding a new love takes time. But this is what happens is, is Nehemiah doesn't explain to the people and say, you know what you need to do? You need to sit there and think about this. He says, no, no, no. You need to celebrate God's goodness. And you know what happens? Revival. You start feasting about God, you will start to understand how he works. You start to understand how he works and you will be thankful for him. Thirdly, true understanding of Scripture always leads to action. It's kind of like caffeine. (laughs) You notice that? The more caffeine you drink, the more you want to do something. Anyone drink a lot of coffee? I was awake most of the night last night because I I mistakenly drank a pot of non-caffeinated coffee from about 5 to about 8 o'clock last night. Not wise. And I'm pretty tolerant of caffeine. But at some point, you've got to do something with it. And true understanding of Scripture always leads to this. If it's not true, I don't think it will lead to this. But when you truly understand Scripture, you'll want to get out there and do something with it. You'll want to be on mission. And it's, I found this an amazing thing that I have never once said, you should go out and share your faith. I've never said that. I've never even said from the pulpit, you guys should really invite your friends. I've just preached Jesus like He's real to me. And you've invited your friends. I've just told you that Jesus means everything to me. And you're like, you guys got to come and hear this guy. I said, this is, this is so important to my life, community. And you're like, well, we got to get him one too. And true understanding of Scripture always leads to action. And here, here's what Scripture does is it leads us to actively thank God. And that's exactly what happened. The Feast of Booths gets celebrated. Now, literally, I mean, I laughed at this. Because I'm like, they actually had a, a Feast of Booths. You guys aren't laughing yet? This is hilarious. God developed a feast around building forts. I mean, who was a fort builder as a kid? Anyone? Yes, I'm still a fort builder. Girls are like, Dad, build us a fort. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll build you a fort. That's awesome. Look at this fort. You know, they're like, they're playing Wii, and I'm like, this fort is awesome. God said, I want you, here's what I want you to do. I saved you out in the desert. You, had, you were out there, you know, you were, um, any army could have taken you at any time. There was no safety. You like you made a lean-to. Like even Bear Grylls could have beat you up. You were out there in these makeshift huts for 40 years and no one touched you. Who do you think can protect you? Me. Now build some forts and remember this. Every year, build a fort on top of your house, out in the gate. I can just, just imagine that there are 10-year-old boys in heaven going, oh, that was awesome. That was an awesome feast, God. Why don't you bring that back for those you know, new covenant people? Because there was this, this, this action. It was just like these people heard the word and they're like, yeah, we'll celebrate. Of course we will. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we say thank you? for protecting us. Now what's interesting is that didn't God just ask His people to rebuild the wall? And didn't that wall in that temple inside the wall, didn't that sometimes feel like, okay, now we can protect ourselves? Now we can trust in our own protection? And right at the moment they build the wall, God says, I want you to remember that wall is not what's going to protect you. I want you to remember that temple is not what's going to protect you. I want you to remember that army that you're going to build and that city is not what's going to protect you. I'm going to protect you. Now build a fort. And remember, 
when you're in that fort, hurting your knees on all the Legos on the floor, that I am good, that I will protect you, that I love you, that in spite of anything that I will bring you through, I will be your protection. You are my people. There's nothing that can happen to you outside of what I allow to happen to you. It's a good tradition, don't you think? Some of you are like, yeah. Summertime comes, we're going to have a little tents out in front of the theater here. The Feast of Forts. Plus, they get to eat. And this is, this is just what's so cool is that I, I think all, all that I really want you to do is just kind of respond a lot like the people. Yes, there are things that you are convicted of. Like, yeah, I, I need to continue to learn to bring the word, allow the word to be brought into my life and here and get convicted of sin. But then as I see that, I realize this is just for my good. And we can look back with thanksgiving. And then this attention to Scripture, what it does is it gives these people a present witness. So it helps them to look back with thanksgiving, but it also gives them present witness. Now, again, if you show up as like someone from Persia and you show up with a bunch of Hebrews that just rebuilt the wall and all you see is all these leafy branches and huts and people like eating a lot, you start asking some questions, don't you? You start saying, what is with these people? It's kind of the point. It's kind of the point. It's one of the reasons why we have a big still at Urban Grace Church. One of the reasons we still have a big is we want people to know this is important to us. We're going to celebrate God every week. We're going to be reminded every week. One of the things that God explained about the Sabbath is it wasn't just to help people rest. It was actually to mark them as a people. So it was like those Christians, they sure sing a lot. Those Christians, they sure celebrate a lot. They sure eat a lot. They sure are happy a lot. They sure have joy. And look at those cool forts that they built. Yes, that was the point. They had this witness. Like you couldn't get around it. You had to walk around these things, right? You had this maze. It was like this witness right there in the physical thing that they did. And again, this is why we have things like baptism. This is why we have things like music. This is why we have things like the Lord's table. This is a physical symbol here so you can see this is important to us. If you're brand new to Christianity, if you don't know who Jesus is, just come and be with us and watch us. We will show you by even the way we order our gatherings what we find important. And I think as Scripture does it, you know where we get this from? This is not me. I didn't make this up. I didn't say, let's see, bread and maybe some grape juice and some wine. No, Jesus said that. I didn't say, oh, it'd be cool if we could just somehow symbolize death and resurrection. I know what we'll do. We'll just get a horse trough. No, Scripture told me that. I just didn't decide to speak in front of you. Some of you were like, yes, you did. Okay, kind of. I read that in a word. It's important to preach the word of God. It's important to have elders. It's important to have community. I didn't just come up with this. I read this in scripture. I was convicted of it. I want to lead you in that. And as people watch that, it witnesses to them and proclaims who Jesus is. And lastly, attention to scripture guarantees where we will end up. Some of you are awfully hopeless, and you forget this. This is not as good as it gets, as as great as revival would be. What you and I will experience on this earth is not the best there is. In fact, Scripture says for those who choose not to believe, this will be the best that they can get. And Scripture reminds us, Paul even says that, uh, that the resurrection is of utmost importance. And in fact, he would go so far as to say, if there's no such thing as bodily resurrection, if there's no such thing as, you know, life with Jesus after death, then he actually says, you should probably find a new religion because this is really kind of nerdy and dorky. It's a waste of time. Some of you are like, oh, Christianity has some good things and bad things. Um, Paul doesn't think so. Jesus doesn't think so. He says it's either all right or it's useless. You know what we find about our end? 
Scripture. In fact, in the book of Revelation, conveniently placed at the end of Scripture, we have a description of this. We sing about it often. The song is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is what the song is about. I saw a new city. A new Jerusalem. That it's not going to be filled with pain. It's not going to be filled with tears. It's not going to be, at least not the bad kind of tears. It's not going to be filled with bad music. It's not going to be filled with harps and cream cheese. doesn't say that, my, my paraphrase. You know what it's going to be filled with? Awesomeness. Days upon days upon days of the awesomeness of God. I mean awesome as in the real way to say awesome. Without Scripture, we never know this. Without constantly filling ourselves up with Scripture, we never know this. Without constantly being reminded in Scripture, we forget this. Most of the time, you need to come back week after week, not because you hear something new, but because you forgot this week. And you need to be reminded of that. Some of you have those little things by your mirror every day. You you have something that you're supposed to remember. Why do you put that there beside your mirror? Because if you forget that, your day doesn't go the same way, right? This is something that God gave to us. that said, I want every time you to read this, you to be reminded, this is not as good as it gets. The man by the name of Mark Driscoll, who's been very important to me in terms of... um, I, I. know who he is. I've met him. He's tremendously helpful in many ways. And one of the biggest uh, concepts that I think he's been so helpful with is this idea of reverse engineering. It's not a concept I think he invented. He just stole it from somebody um, who stole it from somebody else. And the idea of reverse engineering is you start with the end goal in mind and then you work backwards toward your present life. It's a very brilliant way of planning out businesses, finances, life, anything you want to do, discipline, how to get healthy, any of those things. It's a great concept. Reverse engineer. And I'm saying the Bible has a reverse engineering plan for all of us. It says, one day there's heaven. I'm not going to tell you a lot about that right now, he says. But I want you to reverse engineer your life because from now, when you hear the gospel and you understand that I'm not just saved by God, but I'm saved to his mission, you begin reverse engineering toward today. The Bible says this often, plan out your days. Let them not be wasted. Let them not be hopeless. Keeps you track on mission. See, without scripture, we can't reverse engineer. We're moving toward a target that's way too vague for us. Now, my hope is after you hear all this, all you want to do is go home and read your Bible. Not because I told you so, but because you're like, I'd forgotten that. I need that. I know for me, that's all I wanted to do. I want to go back and go, I need some more scripture in my life too. One of those things the scripture mandated was simply said, every time that you gather in my name, I want you to remember me. I'm going to give you a symbol. I'm not just going to say you you need to theoretically think about the death of Jesus, but I'm going to give you a symbol that will remind you of this. You don't think you're a sinner. This reminds you that you are because God said, if I am going to save you, I'm going to have to pay for all the sin that you've committed against me. And this is the high price of sin, and this is how much God hates sin. He's willing to kill people over it. Here's the good news of that. He's allowing you not to be killed over it if you believe that his son was. That's from Scripture. This is symbolized in the, in the, the wine or the grape juice, depending on your conviction. This is shed blood. This is how much God hates sin. There's suffering involved in this. That's why we have bread and we break the bread. Just like God in some ways broke his own son and allowed his own son to be broken for our sake. And so, yes, it is somewhat of a reminder. 
but it is an opportunity for joy. That you do not have to come up here and give your physical life over to pay for your sin. Jesus already did that for you. If this morning you're not a Christian, which means you don't believe that yet, you are very welcome at Urban Grace. We would ask that you not take these. Here is why we would do that. This has no magical power for you. You can't take this to get your sins forgiven. Jesus forgives the sins in your heart, and then you take this because you believe that. So please, don't assume that just because everyone else is going, you have to go to to get your sins forgiven. But if you don't believe that, I would ask you, why not? Why don't you believe that? Do believe that, please. And then partake with us. And then what I want you to do, and this is kind of like, okay, I'm going to pull the pastor card here. You can't do this without smiling. Okay? This is now a command. You have to be happy. You have to be joyful. You have to look around. Give some fist bumps. God's good. Some hugs. Maybe even some holy kisses if you feel up to it. I'm commanding you, do not mourn. Do not weep. Eat of the goodness of God. Enjoy the songs. Enjoy the community that God has built as a result. Okay? That's a command. So if I see that you're not happy, I'm coming after you and I'm going to force you to be happy. Okay? It's a command. So let's... let's